Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house with his people. I especially appreciated that devotional this morning, Curtis. And I, I think as we look at this passage, this text that Mel read, I think our aim and our focus should always be to grow and to find nurture and nutrients from the Word of God so that we can, of course, grow and be um, successful in our journey through life, be, product, be productive Christians. So in this passage Mel read, uh, we have um, a number of verses that have this word, let us, and it's calling us to um, particular actions following this let us. Uh, verses 23, 22, 23, and 24, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And the call on us is to let us do these things. Uh, it comes uh, to us as New Testament believers following proceeding verses that remind us we have it just really, really good as New Covenant believers. Almost too good to be true. No more need for animal sacrifices when we come to do church, when we come to worship. Uh, you think about it, having priest Mel or priest Paul get out a butcher knife every morning and do an animal sacrifice. Uh, we, we, we come to worship and we don't even think about doing something like that. I, I've been in, involved in enough of butchering experiences in my life to know that it's, it's sort of nasty. It's messy. Bloody. At least that's my opinion. But this was a, an almost daily, if not altogether daily, procedure. And at the end of the day... It only covered sin. It didn't take it away. Like ours is today. Verse 4 in the preceding verses says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should have taken away sin. Even with that daily, messy, nasty activity, a very critical activity, it still didn't cleanse or take away sin. And so verse 12 tells us, today as believers, we have a sacrifice that's made once and for all. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice forever, sat down on the, throne, on the right hand of God. So no more need of, of blood sacrifices. It's done. God is fully satisfied with the ultimate sacrifice of his own son. And so today, I repeat, we have it really, really nice almost too nice. So this is the backdrop to these commands that we're looking at this morning. The requests of let us in these verses implies that we do these activities corporately. Let us. It's doing it with others. I see this especially true in the third let us. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. 
And so I see these commands or expectations of God that we expend corporate effort to affect those that we regularly gather with. So my message title is Let Us, which are community engagements. And after my, for some reason, my uh, slides didn't want to work this morning, but after I had the slides finished, I was like, well, maybe I should have used brotherhood engagements rather than community engagements, but I left it stand because I think it's appropriate for us to think about community when we get ready for communion. Community and communion derive from the same root word, I believe. There's something that we all have in common as we gather this morning and as we gather for communion. We know that New Testament Christianity is to be done in brotherhood. We've referred to as community or brotherhood, a family made up of believers. And we're called throughout the scriptures to do a lot of activities together. You commune together. You um, have testimonies that are on Wednesday evening. We had testimonies. We did that together to hear each other. We are called to examine each other. We're called to pronounce corporate blessings, exhortations. You consider the Lord's Prayer that he was asked to, to expound on by his disciples to give instruction on how to pray. He started that prayer, or began that prayer, Our Father in heaven. A community, corporate approach to God. And certainly we can do it individually. But, but there's something really positive about doing it together. So we'll take some time looking at these three, these let us commands, probably spending more time on the third one. But in these next few minutes, uh, look at this practical call from God that we do things together. And then it, 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 it follows up in verse uh, 25 about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. In a letter to the editor of a local newspaper, a man complained that he saw no sense in going to church every Sunday. He said, I've been attending services quite regularly for the past 30 years. He wrote, and during that time, I've listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. But to my consternation, I discover I cannot remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. The letter sparked many responses. One, however, was the clincher. This person wrote in, I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly of my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered that I cannot remember the menu of a single one of those meals. And yet, I receive nourishment from every one of them. In fact, I have distinct, the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death a long time ago. The Bible assumes the importance of regular gatherings of the people of God 
And the admonition to do so actually appears in the context of the danger of forsaking this practice. It assumes we're going to do it. But it gives us the instruction with the expectation that we're probably going to be prone to think it's not so important anymore. And he warns us about that. I think it's safe to say that most of us need help to keep our faith and hope from wavering. Most of us need help to love and do good works. Just as physical food keeps us alive and strong, so also we need the nourishment and teaching, fellowship of God's people. So let, let's look at this first one in verse 22. Let us draw near with a heart that is true. Do it with full assurance as you come near God. We're called to draw near to God together with others who love Christ. And God gives us a few things that should be in place when we do this drawing near. You should do it with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The word sincere here has the idea of being true or dependable. When someone is true and dependable, they are generally prompt. They're the kind of people that you can depend on. You can trust that they're going to do what they say, and they're going to follow through what they've committed to you. They generally won't let you down in your expectations. That's a sincere kind of person, true person. That's the kind of person that you and I are to be when we gather on a Sunday morning. We're, going to, we're, we're supposed to be that otherwise, too. But when you get together with your church family, you're supposed to be a dependable kind of person. If conflict exists between you and another brother or sister, another believer, we're called by God to take the initiative to make, to make that right. At least do our part in making it right. He says, the right approach there is that you don't, you don't expect the other brother to do it first. No, you take the initiative. And apparently, even if it means you just find, think about it on your way to church, you take care of it. So let's read about, uh, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus says about something like that. Matthew 5, verse 23. You're on your way to church, taking your offering. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. And so we take personal responsibility when things aren't the way they should be between one that we plan to worship with. A true
true heart is also undivided. The psalmist says, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who hath clean hands and a pure heart. In 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 12, we have a, a, a story there of, I think it was 50,000 soldiers who were, who were arrayed in battle to help King David, I think it was. And it says they had an undivided heart. In fact, the verse says, such as went forth to battle, they were expert in war, and with all instruments of war, 50,000, which could keep rank, and they were not of a double heart. They were true men. They were clean men. They were devoted. Those are the kind of attitudes we're to have when we come to worship. A true, sincere heart is not divided between God and the world, but is wholly dedicated to him. So another, another condition to, for worship here is coming to God in full assurance of faith. Later in the same book in chapter 11, uh, we have the verse, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, he's God, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Did you, did you come to church this morning confident that what God says in his word is what we need? And did you come expecting to be diligent in your search for God, in your search in his word? God promises us that we will be rewarded when we do this diligently. The word, the, the Hebrew word translated uh, this, this, this idea of drawing near and to diligently seek includes this, includes this word picture of a literal to trample underfoot. Uh, that kind of sounds negative to us, but the idea is there that the thought is that you frequently, you frequently visit your neighbor or you frequently go to God and by doing so, you, you actually trample a path underfoot. I mean, you, you, you go there often, and you go so often that there's a path worn in the grass. That's, this, this whole, that's the idea of this thing of, of drawing near and of diligently seeking. And so there ought to be a well-worn path between you and God because you go to him often. There ought to be a... Um, there ought to be a well-worn path to the people of God because you go there regularly. I, I remember our children, when they were very young, they soon memorized the way to church. It was one of the first uh, trips that they remembered the directions. That, that's necessary. Your children, that should be the first trip they memorize, the way to church. This, this, this great aim here for these, the word of God to us this morning is that we get close. We get near to God and we get near to the people of God. That we have fellowship with him and with them. And regardless of our circumstances, we, we need to see the importance of this. Even, I think, persecuted Christians saw the see the importance of this maybe even more than we do they want to get together with people of god 
They're not content doing it at home by themselves or in front of a screen. They want to be with the people of God. Secondly, in verse 23, we have this thing of holding fast. Hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. I think that the idea of holding fast is probably pretty simple for us to understand. It's, um, but, you know, to hold fast, we, we cling to it. We, we never let it go. Regardless of the circumstances, we, we, we hang on. Well, what's this profession of faith? How do, you, how do you define that? How do you articulate what is, what is profession of faith? What, what would you say you're holding on to or holding fast to? I think profess and confess are very closely related in the scriptures. It's both what we believe and it's what we claim, what we say we believe. It's both our profession and our confession. And of course our profession and what we claim rests firmly on, on Jesus Christ, on this, on this finished work, on this sacrifice that was once and for all. It is Jesus and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins that saves us. To profess that, to confess that, is to live it out. To hold fast unswervingly. Hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering, without swerving. To swerve would be to wander off the path that you should be on. We sometimes... Uh, hear or run into this thing of, of the doctrine of eternal security, which says that if one is truly saved, then salvation is guaranteed and you cannot lose it. However, the Bible consistently calls us to actions such as what we have in the text today. Let us do these things so that you don't lose out, so that you don't swerve out of the way. We're warned against falling away like the Israelites who have been saved from slavery. Uh, they're just getting into Egypt according to our Sunday school le lesson, but it wasn't, well, it was a couple hundred years, I guess, later. They wanted to be delivered from there. And God did deliver them by his mighty stretched out arm. And by the way, as they were delivered and as they moved from Egypt towards Canaan and eventually lived in Canaan, I'm suggesting they had it very nice also. They got to, they got to eat the, from the gardens and the crops that the pagan nations that God had driven out before them, they got to eat right out of, out of their fields. They didn't have to even plant. Well, they had it really, really nice. But many of them didn't do so well in, in this thing of holding fast or drawing near. And so it's recorded for us to learn from so that we don't make the same mistakes. Hold fast to the profession of your faith without wavering. The path that God asks us to walk in is not only narrow, but it's also straight. Matthew 7, 14, straight is the gate, narrow is the way. 
And so when you think about walking a straight and narrow path, you, you, you soon see that when you start getting off of it, when you start wavering, it takes longer to get there, right? You swerve around, it takes longer to do the trip than it would if you'd have stayed on the straight and narrow. As little time swerving off the path as possible, as little time off the path as possible is advisable, as the days are evil and the time is short. Think about maybe what we could accomplish, the church could accomplish more if we stayed straight rather than swerving. Most of us can likely find times or occurrences in our lives when we didn't hold fast to our confession as well as we should have, our profession, whether it's in our workplace, uh, interacting with our extended families, uh, being with our friends. You know, when the pressure is on, it's, it's pretty easy to just get off the straight and narrow, isn't it? But we shouldn't. I appreciated uh, Dwayne's testimony on Wednesday evening about being more willing to be bold for Christ when you're at work, when the pressure's on, when it's maybe just a little easier to be quiet and not make any waves. You know, when you, when you read the text in chapter 10, especially when you read the whole chapter, why would anyone who has been so gloriously saved and as it's so good as we do, why would you be slow to tell people that, you know, your salvation is really wonderful? Have we lost our first love? You know, with, at least from my, my experience, is that with very little opposition and with very little persecution, it's... it's kind of easy to just bump along in life. And if we're not careful, we'll forget how well we're off. Draw near, hold fast. Stay consistent in spending time with God and his people. Yes, both individually and corporately. Thirdly, number verse... Uh, 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The word provoke in today's language, when you use the word provoke and when I use it, most times, it's done in a negative context. I'm quite sure it's not meant to be negative here in this text. Most of us likely associate the word with the word provoke with fights and disputes and quarrels. In the last number of months, Russia has been provoking Ukraine. And of course, you have one nation, when you have one nation provoking another nation, it generally leads to war, and that's what's happening. One party provokes the other into retaliation. The Bible, turns this phrase around. When carnal, evil men and nations provoke to retaliation, God's people are to be really, really different with their provoking. And even called to an opposite response. 
And, and this, this certainly isn't the only time or the only instance when scripture uh, calls the people of, of God to do some kind of radical, upside down kind of living. And, it, and it's very, very different from, from what we see in on redeemed society. Think about them for a few of them for me, uh, with me. When when you're slapped on the one cheek, what's the Bible say to do? Turn the other cheek. Isn't that a interesting thing to ask for God to ask us to do? That's not usually what we are generally inclined to do. Uh, when when uh, you're you, when when you have someone, well, it says you when your enemy despitefully uses you, you're supposed to love them. That's not generally the way we're inclined to do. But the Bible has, has ways of, yeah, it has, um, there's another one. I was just talking about it uh, on Wednesday evening after the service. He says, yeah, I know that God calls me to give the expected mile, okay? The Romans, they, they required the Jews to, to give a mile. When they had a, a burden to carry or a backpack to carry, they, you met, you met a, a, a Jew or, or, or a Palestinian on the road, they were carrying for the, for, the, for the soldier for one mile. That was expected. But Jesus comes along and he says, when they ask for a mile, give them two. Just, just give them an extra one. That's, when, we're, when we're commanded to do something like that that we already didn't think we should have to do, that just, that's just not natural. Jesus turns this phrase, and this is the kind of thing we're to do when we get together and provoke each other to love and good works. The Bible is constantly offering us opportunities to get out of these old patterns, old habits of retaliation, and, and turn it around and make something good out of it. When, something, when someone does something negative, the believer's response is to do something positive. To provoke is to incite, arouse, or call to action. Yeah, Christians sometimes need to be incited, to be stimulated, to be aroused to a good thing. When, when someone provokes you, we're often inclined to irritate, be irritated by that, rather than to be encouraged or uh, stimulated to do that which is good. Provoking others in the right way to this thing of love and good works is a, is a positive thing. It, inspi it should inspire determination. It should, it, it, it should stir up within us a desire to do something good, a blessing. I would guess a few of us uh, sitting here this morning are probably more inclined towards being a pot stirrer than others. I would probably say I'm, I'm maybe a little like that. Maybe not as much as some people. But you kind of enjoy challenging people. Uh, you kind of enjoy getting a reaction out of people. And, and this, this idea of provoking onto love and good works definitely implies that, that you, you're, you're pushing your brother's button a little bit. But be assured, it's never okay to do this with the intent to torment 
or just, you know, just to get a negative reaction. That, that's not the, uh, an acceptable reason to provoke. And it's not okay to do it to make yourself look better than your brother. It's never okay to do it just to pester him. The, on, the only biblical motive here is, is to help him to do good works, to respond in a positive way, to maybe think about doing it this way rather than the way he was doing it, all to the glory of God and for the building of the kingdom. Any other motive that is, any motive that is done with carnality should probably not ever be named among us. Let's move to verse 25 and think about the importance of why we came to church this morning. Good things happen when God's people get together. Provoking each other to love and good works. And we're supposed to do some exhorting when we get together. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. I think that's referring to the end of time. So good things are to happen when we get together. And it's very, very important for us as followers of Christ that we never allow ourselves to think that this is a really important time. Jack Miner had a nickname of Wild Goose Jack. Uh, he was a widely respected uh, believer. And one of the things that it gave him his name was that he banded wild geese and wild ducks, Canadian geese and wild ducks. He would put bands on their legs. And his practice was to attach scripture verses to these bands. And it is said in his lifetime, he branded somewhere around 90,000 birds, migrating birds. And so you can kind of, you know, just imagine 90,000 scripture verses uh, flying through the air annually, or maybe twice a year. But in Jack's early years, he was a tile maker by trade. And one time, while he was there working, making tile, a man came and he got, the result of that meeting, he got really discouraged and disheartened to the extent that Jack went to his minister, to his pastor, and startled him by requesting that he is removed from the membership of the church. He says, I'm not fit to be known as a, a member of, of this church. Well, the pastor says, so Jack, whatever happened to lead you to talk like this and make this kind of request? Well, Jack says, yesterday afternoon, I got in a tiff. I got in a disagreement with a man who came into my tile yard. And to be perfectly frank with you, pastor, I was so mad at him that I came to within an inch of striking him. And I don't think that any man who gets into a fit and temper such as that should belong to the church. Well, what was it, the pastor asked. 
that actually kept you from hitting the other man. Since you were so inclined to do so, what kept you from doing it? Well, Jack says, the fact that I was a member of the church and, and knowing how it would affect you and the other church members, that's why I didn't do it. That's what restrained me. I knew it wouldn't do for a church member and a Sunday school teacher to punch that man good. Really now, isn't that splendid, said the pastor. Your church membership was worth something to you, wasn't it? It actually kept you from a disgraceful fight. And yet you're here to tell me that you want to be taken off the membership roll. I see your point, says Jack. Don't say another word. Let my name stand on the membership roll. As you consider that story, church and the gathering of God's people not only blesses us in positive ways, it also restrains us. And if, if we're honest and we think about it a bit, you think over your life. You think over what you would probably have done many times. You've probably been saved from a thousand snares such as Jack was in because you belong to the people of God. Just knowing there are people watching how we live, knowing they will be disappointed if we fall, knowing someone may follow our example, knowing that my failure smears their life and reputation. Knowing all that places a restraint, a good restraint, on us. It gives us direction. It gives us traction. It gives us, at times, as in Jack's case, a pause as we walk the slippery ways of the sojourn. I'm of the persuasion there is divine protection on a believer when he finds himself under the watchful care of a biblical brotherhood. There is divine protection on a believer when he finds himself under the watchful care of a biblical brotherhood. A number of you on Wednesday evening expressed appreciation for that. I also believe the devil has greater access and a foothold on one who deliberately chooses to place himself outside of that protection. And quite possibly the biggest reason that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together is this, is this thing of, of God wanting us to be safe. God wanting us to be careful as we live out the sojourn. I believe it's, his one, it's one of his primary methods of helping us 
to stay safe. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we have this verse. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he, seeking whom he may devour. What does, what does a lion do when he's seeking someone to devour? I'm told, and I haven't watched a lion much, I'm told that he looks for prey in isolation. A, 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 someone that he can attack that is by himself somewhere. The easiest, most vulnerable one is the one that's off by himself, away from those who could and would come to its rescue. And so we have this word here to us, do not forsake assembling because the enemy seeks to destroy, devour those, and he probably is going to have more success with those who are in isolation. The Bible often uses the military imagery to speak of a Christian life. There's an enemy of our soul, talking about the, the, the army that's the enemy. To encourage someone in a military context is to be that person's ally. Ukraine has allies right now. I think Russia might have one or two. A familiar tactic of military commanders is to usually divide and separate and then conquer. Because when you get them, you get them divided and separated, you're going to be so much, it's going to be so much easier to conquer them. And I, I think the image, imagery there is really important for us. Because we, we have an enemy of our soul. The Bible is very clear about that. And he's, he's not dumb. And this is, one of the, this is one of the skills that he uses, is to find people individuals in isolation who don't have some people around them caring for them. To cut, our, to cut ourselves off from the gathering together that should be happening among us is also to cut ourselves off from the encouragement, from the inspiration, from the comfort that we would get from fellow believers. Proverbs 27 Verse 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. When you sharpen a hoe to work in the garden, you take a file and you sharpen that thing. And the scripture is talking about individuals who provoke one another to love and good works. It's that file that you take and, you know, sharpen them. We do this by example. We do it with by a word here, a question here and there. As you look back at this um, text, these three let us, you can practice some faith and hope when you're alone. But I'm suggesting you can't, do, you can't so well provoke others to love and good works when you're alone. You need to get together with people to do this. So let us draw near to God 
let us hold fast without wavering, and let us consider how we can get our brothers and sisters motivated to good works. And yes, even some biblical provoking here is, is in order. That's Neil for prayer. Thank you.